0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Climate change has been a hard sell among some communities of faith. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and an evangelical Christian. She spent years trying to convince other Christians that climate change is real. She told NPR that the people we trust, people we respect, people whose values we share in the conservative community, in the Christian community, those people are telling us, many of them, this isn't a real problem. It's a hoax. Even worse, you can't be a Christian and think that climate change is real. You can't be a conservative and agree with the science. Hayhoe says that uh, caring about uh, climate change is one of the most Christian things you can do. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's coming to Utah for several events uh, in Salt Lake City and Logan beginning on March 24th and uh, continuing for the next uh, several days. March 23rd, I should say, we'll be announcing those uh, events. And she joins us for the first half of the program today. Following uh, her in the second half, we'll talk with Susan Soleil and Stephen Treble for Utah Interfaith Power and Light. Catherine Hayhoe, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Appreciate you uh, being with us. So uh, you went to, I think you grew up and went to uh, college in, uh, in Canada, right?
1: That's right. But when I was nine years old, my parents moved to Columbia in South America to serve as missionaries there.
0: Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. And, and so you've had a, you had a background of faith there. You're an evangelical Christian. Yes. Um, when did you get interested in the, in the topic of climate uh, change?
1: Well, it wasn't until university when I was studying physics, and you have to take a couple of extra courses to graduate. So I was looking around, and I saw this interesting course on climatology over in the geography department. Now, growing up in Canada and in Columbia, my education had always kind of covered environmental issues like uh, air pollution, water scarcity, deforestation, and climate change. So I had heard about climate change, but it wasn't until I took that course that I realized, first of all, that climate change is all about physics, which is what I just happened to be studying, and second of all, that it is such a big problem. And we will not be able to fix our problems with air pollution and water scarcity um, and even having access to food in other parts of the world if we
2: don't fix this problem first.
0: I was interested to read that uh, you had a dilemma that kind of in microcosm, our country is divided on this and and many parts of the world. You had this in your own marriage, and you didn't have the conversation with your husband until, what, a couple of months after your marriage?
1: <laughs> That's right. So, so I met my husband at graduate school at the University of Illinois. Um, he was doing his Ph.D. in linguistics. And coming from Canada and from South America, I had never really met anybody who didn't think that climate change is real. You know, the sky is blue and climate change is real. Um, but for him, growing up in the U.S., um, going to a Baptist school, um, his dad being Republican, politician, He had never met a Christian who did think that climate change was real. So we never thought to ask each other. It just (laughs) never occurred to to us until after we got married.
0: I see. It didn't didn't occur to you. So, I mean, this is something obviously that people would advise you to have before you get married, but uh, it just didn't occur to you.
1: That's right. I mean, we I had never met anybody who didn't think it was real, and he's a smart person, so I assumed, obviously, he did. And he'd never met a Christian who thought it was, it was and so he knew I was a Christian, so he assumed clearly she doesn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, you were able to convince him.
1: Yes. Um, after a long, uh, you know, many, many series of chats and talks, I learned, I have to say, just as much as he did. I mean, because when you've always heard something is true, you never really take the time to dig into why we think it's true. So through our conversations, I had that opportunity, and I think that it has made a huge difference in my perspective, not just on the issue of climate change, but also on why we believe what we do.
0: And so you've, I guess, you know, starting with your, with your husband, and and you could see this branching out from there. You've made it, I guess, part of your mission to, to try to convince other Christians this is a real problem and and we should take it seriously. So, so I my, have.
1: Um, Christians and conservatives, I would say,
0: because
1: mm-hmm. um, both of those groups are—we are being told by the people we trust that it isn't real.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's pretty stark, and I I think you know I've I've seen this in the press as well, and the conversations I've had as well. That uh, that quote you told uh, NPR that uh, it, it is a big divide, and uh, it's it I think it seems like a zero sum game a lot of times, doesn't it, between those two communities?
1: <laughs> it is because. What's been happening is, over the last 20 years or so, our society has become increasingly polarized politically. Um, I went to a talk the other day that horrified me, because it said, apparently now, the number one predictor of who we will marry is no longer appearance or personality, it is political affiliation. That's how polarized our society has become. And somehow, climate change has become a polarized issue, if you are Democrat, of course you think it's real, and if they're Republican, of course you don't. Whereas the reality is is that, you know, a thermometer is not Republican or Democrat. <laughs> whether We all want water, we all want clean air, whether we're Republican or Democrat. So the problem is just science, and the solutions are common sense to any of us who are humans living on this planet.
0: I've read that you, you said you feel like um, politics and faith have gotten sort of mixed up. Uh, and one example. This seems like a. You say you get hate mail, right? And and one one event, uh, gentleman stood up and said, "I don't want the government, uh, you know, controlling my thermostat." This was at a, I think, an event, uh, a religious event. An example of why that you think these two things have gotten confused.
1: Yes, um, I definitely get more hate mail and more attacks from people who share my faith than from people who do not. Um, but the, the reason why I think it's gotten confused is because when we look in the Bible, what do we see in the Bible? We see um, God telling us that we, we have been given this planet to care for. We have, we have responsibility over all living things on this planet. And then we have God telling us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love others as Christ loved us. So these are the things that we see in the Bible. And when we look at the world around us, This issue of climate change just highlights the fact that we are not being good stewards of our resources and we are certainly not loving others when we act like this problem doesn't even exist because the real reason we care about climate change is not because of the polar bear, it's because of people. People are being affected by this every day and the people who are poor and vulnerable, the people who already don't have enough food to eat or don't have access to clean water, they are the first to feel its effects today.
0: So you've, uh, you've, you've made a strong argument on, you know, from, from the Bible, stewardship, right, of, of the earth. What are the arguments you're getting from fellow Christians as, as to why they feel that this is not a big issue?
1: <laughs> well, at, at its core, the real reason why we object to this problem is because we don't like the solutions we've been offered. And that's fair enough, because a lot of solutions involve words like taxes— and government legislation and Uncle Sam telling you how to set your thermostat or what type of car you can buy. I mean, these are the types of solutions that immediately spring to people's minds when we hear about this issue. So our root problem really is with the solutions, but the honest truth is it's easier to deny the reality of the problem than to say, okay, it's real, but I don't want to do anything about it. Now, that said, there are definitely some religious-sounding reasons. Reasons like, oh, well, if God is in control, then, you know, puny little humans could never affect anything as big as the earth. But we can look around every day and see the impact of the choices we make. Someone has a drink and gets behind the wheel of a car, and an innocent person can be injured or even killed. God doesn't stop that from happening, because he's given us the brains to make good decisions. We just need to use those brains.
0: Hmm. Um, So... uh what are the arguments that, that you make, then? What uh, how, how do you frame this to uh, to try to get Christians on board, people, conservatives on board?
1: Um, I think at its core this is a Christian issue, and it is a conservative issue. If we're conservative, then clearly we want to conserve our resources, rather than running through them so quickly as if there's no tomorrow. If we're Christians— Clearly, not only do we believe that God created this earth and gave it to us to care for, but we also believe that we are to love others. And again, climate change is not an issue of the polar bear, it's an issue about people. And so it is living out our faith, living out what is in our hearts, to care for others and to care for the way that our actions are affecting them. And that is what climate change is. Mm. It's the fact that, you know, three or four hundred years ago, we made a choice to get our energy from coal and natural gas and oil, and that choice has brought enormous benefits. I mean, our lifespan is so much longer, the quality of our life is so much higher, we have access to better food and better water and better technology, we have much better lives, but there was a price that we didn't know about back in the 1700s. We know about it today, and so that's why it's time to make a different choice today.
0: I think one of the things you ask people is what do you value? So how does, how does that how does that get people to come together?
1: So often we, we think of climate change, you know, even if we're, we say, okay, it's real, and okay, you know, we should probably do something about it, but I'm going to be honest, it's maybe number 82 on my list. Or maybe if I really, really care about the environment, maybe it's number 12 on my list. But I care about my kids' health. I care about my personal finances. I care about the, you know, my family, my community, there's so many other things I care about that, you know, climate change really kind of has to take you know, back for now. The reality is, is that climate change is not a separate issue on our list. Climate change affects all the things we already care about. If we're a farmer, we care about having enough water to irrigate our crops, and climate change is affecting that. And through it, it's affecting the viability of our farm in our pocketbook. Climate change is affecting the health of our kids through its impact on air quality and our heat extremes. Climate change is affecting our economy. Climate change is affecting national security even. One of the most concerned organizations about climate change is the Department of Defense because they see the impact that these weather extremes are having around the world, causing all kinds of instability. So it's so important to connect the issues to things we already care about because I believe we don't need any new values to care about climate change. We don't all of a sudden have to all turn into some green tree hugger. I mean, here in Texas, we don't even have trees to hug. So, so I think we already have all the values we need to care about. it. We just need to understand how this issue connects to the values we already have.
0: Through your experiences, you've been doing this for a while. Are you going to you know, faith communities, uh, talking to conservatives as well? Have you seen any movement at all? Uh, you know,
1: I am definitely seeing people... Um, become more and more curious and more interested to know what information we have and why this matters. And I've definitely started to see a shift in people saying, you know what, I can actually see there's something different out there. You know, five years ago or 10 years ago, people were like, ah, you know, it's just the same as it's always been. And nowadays, people are saying, okay, there, there's something different. You know, these crazy snowfalls we're having, this incredible drought in the West, these stronger hurricanes and storms we're seeing, this This
0: isn't normal. Something's different. Let's talk about this. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, She is an atmospheric scientist, a climate scientist, and uh, she's at uh, Texas uh, Tech University. Um, She is director of the Climate Science Center there, and uh, she's coming for several events in Utah. And we have her for another uh, 10 minutes. You can join the program at 1-800-826-1495. What do you think? 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxessgmail.com, gmail.com, And we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Uh, let me just outline uh, the events uh, so you'll have a chance to go to those. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe will be presenting on Monday, March 23rd at 7 o'clock at the First Presbyterian Church on C Street in Salt Lake City. Then on Tuesday, the 24th of this month, a couple of events in Logan. First of those is at 3 o'clock in Engineering Building, Room 108, um, and there's a reception afterward. Then at 5 o'clock in the LDS Tabernacle on uh, Main Street in Logan, and a reception follows at St. John's Episcopal Church. Um, And uh, then uh, events continue back in Salt Lake. Uh, on the 26th, Wednesday, at the Clark Planetarium in uh, Salt Lake City. So all those events, I believe, are free and open to the public and uh, presented by the uh, Salt Lake Interfaith uh, Season, Utah Interfaith Power and Light, Nature Conservancy, and First Presbyterian First Church, other sponsors as well. We're uh, pleased to have Catherine Hayhoe on with us for another uh, 10 minutes. Uh, so I, I want to... Uh, I want to talk about you just made reference to uh, the, this, you know, the strange weather. We're, we're noticing this. And in, in the West, it's a drought. And in, in here in Utah, it's been one of the warmest winters on record. And we're worried about lack of snowpack in the mountains and, and, and effects on, on a drought. In the East, it's been snow. Um, and so unusual weather. Now, how do we connect? Some people don't connect that to climate change. In fact, some people who are skeptics say, well, this proves that there's no climate change.
1: I know. I have heard all those things. And I should say, too, that we've even seen record cold in some parts of the East. There's some places in southern Canada and the Northeast that have seen record cold temperatures, too. So we look around and we say... Just a second, isn't this thing called global warming? Where is global warming now if you live in the eastern half of the country? If you live in the western half, people are saying it's here, it's right here. (laughs) So that's why rather than calling it global warming, which I think is is a terrible name because it refers to the overall average temperature of the planet. I mean, for you and I, the temperature of the planet is the last thing we're ever going to notice. What we're going to notice is global weirding. We're going to notice that our weather patterns are changing. And right there in Utah, they've done studies looking at how the weather patterns that bring rain to Utah are changing. They've also done studies looking at how climate change is affecting the persistence of that ridge that's maintaining that drought over the west. We've also done studies, and I've done some of them myself, showing that a warming planet means that there's more water vapor sitting in the air because more water evaporates out of our oceans and lakes and rivers when it's warmer. So when a storm comes along, there's more water vapor for that storm to pick up and dump. And if it happens to be below freezing, that water vapor gets dumped as snow. So we've been predicting for years that the Northeast would be seeing heavier snowfalls as a result of climate change, and that is coming true. Hmm.
0: So that you've written that this is a uh, climate change is a tragedy of the commons, so we need collective action. So that gets us back to politics, doesn't it?
1: Sadly, it does. That is why we're in such a bind, because individual actions, you and I as an individual, we will never have sufficient incentive to fix this problem all by ourselves. We have to have collective action, because we all live on this planet. We all want a better life for ourselves and our kids. We all want a secure future. We all want enough energy to power that future. We all want the same things, but to fix this problem, we have to work together to get them.
0: Another interesting thing I've seen you quoted saying: um, for some people, it can feel like giving up their identity in order to care about climate change. You know, we talk of if you're Christian uh, of, of a certain kind, if, if you're conservative, if you're Republican, your very identity. This has gotten so polarized that it can seem like giving up your identity. So how do you how do you solve that? How do you bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, I mean. I've, I've had, I was speaking at a little Christian college a couple of weeks ago, and I got a chance to sit down with some of the students for lunch, and one of the students shared with me that when he's with his friends, he doesn't want to talk about climate change, because he knows the science, and he knows it's real, but if he opens his mouth, he just gets ridiculed and put down by his friends, and so he said, you know, I feel like I can't even be myself, because it's become such a cultural issue that if you are part of this group, this group often being Christians or being conservative, we can't think that climate change is real. So how do we get around that? I think the only way to get around it is to connect this issue with our values and to say, all right, if we're conservative, this is what we believe, and here's let me share with you why I think climate change matters if we're conservative, or if we're Christian, or if we're Republican, or if we're a parent, <laughs> or if we're a farmer, or a rancher. Let me share with you why... I think this
0: issue matters. So uh, uh, just a couple, we're, we're uh, down to the last five minutes uh, with you here. Um, so first of all, if we continue on the current trajectory, maybe you could outline for us what what scientists are telling us will happen.
1: Mm-hmm. If, if we continue um, relying on coal and natural gas and oil as our primary source of energy, we are going to see rapid changes that you know, are going to get to the point where it's, it's going to be really tough for us to adapt and prepare for these changes. We're going to start to see really significant economic losses um, in all sectors, in our water sector, in our agricultural sector, in our energy sectors. Um, we're going to see impacts that really matter. Whereas if we can begin to transition in a, in a sensible, sustainable way to sources of energy that don't produce carbon, then we are going to see a much different future, a future that's still does involve some change, but change that we are able to prepare for, that we are able to incorporate into our planning. The choice is up to us, and the choice is available to us now. The longer we delay, the more doors close. But the good news, though, is that changes are happening. I mean, here in Texas, last March, we generated over a third of our electricity from wind in one week. We are seeing wind turbines going up all across Texas is number one in the United States in wind, but China is number one in the world in wind. China's coal use dropped last year for the first time ever, and they have plans to start phasing it out in five years. So we are seeing changes happening around the world, and it's up to us to make sure that we're not left behind.
0: What what should be done? What what would you, you know, if you were the queen of the world, what? uh, what are the you know top three? What top three bullet points that you would you would uh, mandate? What what should be done?
1: Well, as individuals, because we're always wondering, you know, what can we do as individuals? As individuals, we control a substantial fraction of the U.S. emissions. So the number one thing we as individuals can do is go online, find a carbon calculator. Just Google carbon calculator. The EPA has one. The Nature Conservancy has one. Measure our own carbon footprint. Because we don't know what to do unless we know where all this carbon's coming from. And, you know, we're often surprised to learn what it is about our day-to-day lives that produces so much carbon. So as individuals, that's the number one thing we can do. But in terms of what we could do nationally, if I could wave a magic wand or be president for a day, the number one thing we need to do is put a real price on carbon. Because we are not paying the real price. For all the carbon we're putting into the atmosphere and so how can we as consumers and how can businesses and industry make the right choices when we don't have the right price on carbon because believe me we are paying for those costs but we're paying for them out of our taxes rather than paying for them as we make our purchasing choices
0: it occurs to me that you've you've referenced a you know a friend who just doesn't want to talk about this, and that would seem to be the reaction of maybe a lot of people. It's it's just so polarized, you know. You know, add that to the to the list of things you don't talk about in Blight company. No, you you you, <laughs> exactly. you you fly in the face of that. You're you're on a mission to you know convert other evil evangelical Christians, the conservatives. So what do you what do you say to that? What what have been your experiences? Uh, I Imagine you have negative experiences. Have you had positive experiences? You go forth uh, trying trying to do this.
1: Well, well, first of all, I'm I'm actually explicitly not trying to convert people because often this issue is presented as something that you either believe in or you don't, as if it's a religion. I think that science science is made up of observed information, data, and facts that we make up our minds on based on the evidence. So I'm very careful. I'm not trying to convert people. We all have our own faith and we should stick to that faith. Um, but we can look at information and we can make the right decision. so I'm trying to convince people, yes, um, that it's real. And I would say probably one of the best responses I ever got was when I when I spoke to a group of people who down here in Texas who were very, very doubtful as to the reality of what I was saying. And one person came up to me afterwards and they said, "You know what?" You, I don't think this thing is real, but you addressed every single argument that I had. So if I'm going to keep on thinking it isn't real, I have to find it, come up with some new arguments. Otherwise, I'm going to have to change my mind. And mm-hmm. I don't think you can be any more fair than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we reached the end of our time. I know we had to let you go here. Um, we'll be coming up in the next half of the program. We'll be continuing this uh, topic uh, with uh, Susan Soleil and Stephen Trimble from Utah Interfaith Power and Light. But we have had on with us. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who is an atmospheric scientist. She's director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's coming to Utah for several events in Salt Lake City. And Logan, speaking to the topic, faith, science, and climate action. Dr. Hayhoe, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for
1: having me.
0: And uh, those events, let me outline that before we go to break. Uh, You may want to go to one or more of these. Uh, So on uh, March 23rd, that's a Monday, 7 o'clock, First Presbyterian Church in Salt Lake City on C Street there. Then two events on Tuesday, the 24th in Logan. First of those is at 3 o'clock. That's an engineering building room 108 on the USU campus. There's a reception after the event at 5 o'clock at the LDS Tabernacle. Dr. Hayhoe will be there. And uh, there are uh, refreshments, a reception at St. John's Episcopal Church following that event, beginning at 6.15. And then back to uh, Salt Lake City uh, for an event at the uh, Clark Planetarium. That's at 7 o'clock on Wednesday, March 26th. We'll talk with the members of Interfaith Power and Light. That's an organization of uh, faith groups who uh, seeks to deepen the connection between ecology and faith, and to make climate change a moral issue rather than simply a political issue. More following the break.
3: So here you are listening to your favorite public radio program on Utah Public Radio. Well, this time we'd like to hear from you. You can share your thoughts, your ideas about Utah Public Radio now and about the future of public radio by going to our website and taking our survey. It just takes five to 10 minutes. You can find it online at upr.org and you can tell us which programs you enjoy and perhaps those you would rather not hear. And comment in general about what you value about the service UPR provides as your local public radio station. You can take the survey by going to upr.org and thank you. It's a colorful, inventive picture of the sea, a portrait painted with music. La
2: Mer by Claude Debussy we will hear it from a concert in the landlocked city of Dallas, Texas. Jaap van Sveden conducting the Dallas Symphony. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Monday morning at
0: 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist and evangelical Christian. She's spent years trying to convince other Christians that climate change is real. And uh, in a quote to NPR, uh, she outlined the divide on this issue. She said that uh, many fellow Christians and conservatives are saying that you can't be a Christian and think that climate change is real, you can't be conservative and agree with the science. Uh, And she says that caring about climate change is one of the most Christian things you can do. Talking about uh, people of faith and uh, this issue of climate change. And uh, by the way, Catherine Hayhoe is uh, coming to Utah for several events. Let me outline those again on Monday, March 23rd, 7 o'clock, First Presbyterian Church on C Street in Salt Lake City, an event. Then two events in Logan on Tuesday the 24th. First of those is 3 o'clock in the Engineering Building, room 108. Reception follows. That's on the USU campus. Then at 5 o'clock at the LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan. a Reception follows that, 615 at the St. John's Episcopal Church. And then back to... Uh, Salt Lake City for Wednesday, the 26th, Clark Planetarium. The event there is at 7 o'clock. So we welcome in now for the remainder of the program, uh, Susan Soleil, who's with Utah Interfaith Power and Light. Welcome back to the program.
4: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Appreciate you uh, being on with us. And Stephen Trimble, also with Utah Interfaith Power and Light. Welcome back to the program.
2: Hi, Tom. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Thank you. Let me start with Susan Soleil. Remind us what Utah Interfaith Power and Light uh, is. What do you do?
4: So, the mission of Utah Interfaith Power and Light, and I always emphasize the interfaith because of uh, Rocky Mountain Power used to be Utah um, Power and Light, and so I always say think spiritual, not electric, although occasionally we do get calls asking people, <laughs> people asking us to turn their power back on. But, um,
2: so <laughs> you do?
0: You really do? We
4: really have <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. Say, oh, no, please call Rocky Mountain Power. Okay. Um, but we... Uh, we really focus on working with faith communities, collaborating with them to uh, green their sanctuaries, lower their carbon footprint, become more energy efficient, and consider renewable energy sources for their houses of worship.
0: Stephen Trimble, I wonder what uh, I don't know. What arguments have you heard from people of faith? Um, you know, saying that uh, uh, you know maybe questioning why why are people of faith why Utah Utah interfaith power and light why are you why are the faith communities uh, you know involved in this issue?
2: Well, it's, it's, it, I think it's just a brilliant way to approach this enormously important issue. Uh, the Interfaith Power and Light movement was started by an Episcopal priest, Sally Bingham, uh, quite a while ago. And there are now, uh, I don't know what you might call them, chapters of Interfaith Power and Light in more than 40 states. And so Sally Bingham started in California with this brilliant idea that climate change is so crucial as an issue for all of us and our children, and yet it's been so politicized that we can't even talk about it. So her idea was, let's pull that conversation out of the realm of politics and into communities of faith, where it's not so politicized and where we can talk about climate justice. We can talk about climate change as a social justice issue. And that was the origin of the Interfaith Power and Light movement. And so every state has its own chapter working with, local issues, local uh, houses of worship, and communities of faith, and trying to move this conversation forward and and take it out of this sort of uh, difficult let's scream at each other, you believe it, I don't, climate denier kind of thing, and talk about why the future matters to all of us and to our children and what we can do about it.
0: Hmm. Uh, uh, So I wonder, uh, Susan Salam, let me direct this to, to you, I've heard at least uh, Christians say that I've heard this argument uh, that uh, God's in control, right? And He'll take care of everything, and uh, therefore we don't need to worry about this.
4: Well, and first of all, I'm going to say. For all of those who are Christians who do accept the science, um, there are lots of them, so I want to make sure that you 're not lumping the Episcopalians and the um, Presbyterians and the Catholics there's a huge i mean the the Pope is going to come out with uh, an encyclical soon on climate. And climate change. So there are huge swaths of Christians who do accept the science. I just want to make sh- make that point first. Okay. Um, and yes, there are a number that say, "Oh, God is in control." And you know what? I always say to them, if, if they say it to me, I just say, "Really? We actually have a lot of free choice. That's free will here, and we can exercise that free will for good or for ill." And um, and I just. Uh, Stress that they should be looking at doing good in the community, good for themselves, good for their families, and good for the world. That's Mm -hmm. another part of what we're supposed to be doing, is caring for creation.
0: And and Susan what what in in your mind, in, in your heart, what's the argument, the faith argument, for action on climate change?
4: Thank you. Really, there are two pieces that go beyond those political divides. The first is we, as people of faith, Every single sacred text tells us we need to care for what God has given to us. And this beautiful creation, this beautiful world, has been given to us to care for, not to ruin. And the other piece is we are all told to love one another and care for those who have the least. Again, every sacred sac- text says that. And if we are to do that, we need to do a better job Of caring for what has been given to us and a much better job of caring for those who have the least because those who have contributed the least to this problem are affected first and most powerfully and um, the talk of putting a big seawall up around New York or New Jersey no one's talking about doing that around any of the islands that are being swamped by seawater um, so if we're really going to care for our brothers and sisters around the world, we need to do a much better job of caring for the earth and looking out for everyone.
0: Stephen Jermall, I'm interested in your answer to the same question. In, in you know, your, your mind, your heart, what's the faith argument for climate change action?
2: Well, I, I certainly agree with, with what Susan said. But um, the bottom line is that this is an issue that faces all people whatever their faith, whatever their politics, and uh, the science is not debatable at this point. You know, we are headed into a changing earth, and faith is one aspect of being human, and it's a way that we relate to each other. It's a way we, we, we relate to understanding our, our lives and our, our sort of reasons to be here. And so I, I think the, the key thing is, as Susan said, it's, um, it's caring for each other as much as any sort of environmental issue. It's what Catherine Hayhoe said when she said, this is not about polar bears, this is about people. You know, every way that we live on the, on the Earth is going to change as the climate change changes. You know, we have changed the climate. Ninety-seven percent of scientists have told us this. You know, science is not opposed to religion. Science is simply a tool humans use to understand the Earth. And as the world changes, and as the sea level rises, millions of people will be displaced. Every, you know, everything will change. As Naomi Klein uh, coined this great phrase to, to title her last book about what we need to do in response to climate change. Her name, the name of her book is, This Changes Everything. Mm. And as we respond to that, the Interfaith Power and Light movement's primary point is, how are we going to cope? with the effects of climate change on the poor? How are we going to cope with the effects of climate change on our children and our grandchildren? You know, this is about people, and that that is the the conversation that we need to have in communities of faith, and quit thinking about whether it's a Democrat or Republican issue or an environmentalist versus a uh, use it up, land as a commodity issue. That's not the point. The point is, this is real. It's coming down the line immediately. It's already happening. What are we going to do? Hmm.
0: How do you, uh, Stephen Turnbull? How do you, how do we move beyond the, the the framing of the debate in in political terms, liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat? How do you how do you hope to move it past that?
2: Well, we've got to we we have to talk with each other, and we have to break down these. These walls that people have put around each other that uh, prevent that conversation. You know, people refusing to recognize science because they believe the science is somehow contaminated by the other political party, or um, you know, believing what they hear on Fox News, where it's climate change is ridiculed simply because uh, somehow Fox News has equated science with liberal politics. I, I don't understand that. There's certainly um, you know, the arguments that Catherine Hayhoe makes are so critical. That's why it's so wonderful that that uh, she will be here in Utah. So we've, we've got to have that conversation, and Interface Power and Light tries to depoliticize it. The other thing we can do is simply elect different people, um, people who are more sympathetic to reality. Uh, at, the, at the Stegner Center Symposium last week, run by the Stegner Center uh, at the Law School at the University of Utah, uh, Brian Munch of Utah Physicians for for a Healthy Environment was asked, "What is the one thing that we need to do to improve our air quality?" And his answer was, "Vote differently."
0: Yeah, I guess if you see the solution as political, then then the you know the the action is is political as well. Let me uh, uh, give the uh, the times and dates for Dr. Catherine Hayho's events. Uh, you may want to uh, go and hear her. She's speaking on faith, science, and climate action. And uh, hope you joined us in the first half of the program. Conversation with uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist and evangelical Christian. Uh, So the first event is on Monday, March 23rd at 7 o'clock in the First Presbyterian Church on uh, C Street in Salt Lake City. Two events then follow on Tuesday, March 24th in Logan. There's an event at Utah State University, 3 o'clock in Engineering uh, Building Room 108. Reception follows with refreshments. Uh, There's a community event at 5 o'clock on March 24th in the LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan, and refreshments and a a reception at St. John's Episcopal Church at 615 following that event, and then an event on Wednesday, March 26th, Clark Planetarium, 7 o'clock. All these events, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Right now, I'm uh, talking with the members of Utah Interfaith Power and Light, who are uh, Susan Soleil and uh, Stephen Trimble. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, and you can uh, join us on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio. Susan Soleil, I'm, I'm interested in uh, connections. We all have different experiences, and a lot of times we come to this, uh, I guess, activism on climate change through our experiences with with nature. What if you tell us your experiences? I'm reading on the uh, on the website, which is by the way, uh, utahipl.org. org. Uh, you grew up in Murray and Sandy. Um, back when Fashion Place Mall was a huge field, you say, so you played outside in that area.
4: Yes, I have fabulous memories of just hanging out in dirt and watching um, caterpillars um, create. Uh, Turn into, the whole process of turning into a butterfly and, and hanging out at, um, with mud, sticks, and fishing in water. and I, I loved being outside, and I have, um, since uh, those times in the fields around my houses, um, really come to appreciate the uh, time I was able to just spend outside. Uh, it, we really do want to protect what we love. And... When we love the outdoors and when we love nature and we love the connection that we feel to the earth and the spirit and to one another and the animals, uh, when we have that very strong in our being, then we are much more inclined to work um, with organizations and with each other to conserve uh, those lands and places and uh, uh, the the animals that that, uh, abide there.
0: I wonder, uh, Stephen Trouble, if you could uh, talk to the same uh, same question. Yeah, of course, author of Bargaining for Eden and, and many other books, and uh, you've, you've talked a lot in those books about your, your love of, of nature, of the outdoors. How do you connect those? I mean, it's an obvious connection. I wonder if you talk about it, about that.
2: Uh, sure, Tom. Um, it, I think what I'd like to talk about is is the irony of thinking of the wild landscape that surrounds us in Utah as timeless. You know, so many people walk through the canyons or go up in the mountains, and, and that is a word that often comes up. It just seems like it is so timeless, beyond time. But what I've learned in, in researching my book projects over the years is that the desert is dynamic. The mountains are dynamic. You know, Everything is constantly changing over a long period of time. And as you begin to take that, that more uh, you know, geological time frame and keep that with you when you look at the landscape, you have a sense that as timeless as it might appear, everything is dynamic and fragile. And what climate change is doing is is taking these landscapes that nurture us and nourish us and change them much more rapidly than, than that uh, sort of timeless feel that we've gotten used to. You know, we love, for instance, to be up in the alpine regions of the Wasatch. Uh, we revel in... Pikas chirping at us from a talus slope or little flocks of rosy finches flying by and all those alpine wildflowers. You know, climate change is going to move treeline up the mountains until we have no alpine tundra at all in Utah. And pikas will go extinct. You know, that's where we're headed. We're headed for a landscape where Salt Lake City and and Logan will have the the climate of St. George. And Park City will have the climate of Salt Lake City. You know, that's where we're headed. That's what science tells us. You know, if you look at the maps showing the kinds of drought that will arrive in the West, the Colorado Plateau and and Utah are right smack in the center of that red bullseye on those climate change maps. So all of us who have have found ways to renew ourselves in nature and revel in those wild places that are so easy to get to here in, in Utah, especially when we live along the Wasatch Front and we can get up in the mountains or out in the desert so easily. You know, it's all going to change, and we may not have enough water, and the cities in the the even warmer deserts, like, like Phoenix and Las Vegas, may simply not be able to exist. And so, that is part of our relationship with nature, and I think that we need to
0: not only revel in our
2: solitude, but take on the social responsibility of being engaged with a conversation about where we're headed. And any way we can have that conversation is good and the reason I wanted to be on the board of directors of Interfaith Power and Light is to move that conversation out into the open and and move it forward as much as I can and and support Susan as the director of Interfaith Power and Light.
0: Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, t- two members of Utah Interfaith Power & Light, Susan Soleil and Stephen Trimble, and we have them for another six minutes. If you'd like to join us, it's one 800 You can join us at upraxis at and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We have a caller. First, I want to get to this email. Uh, She's uh, correcting me, and thanks for that. Lacey in uh, Logan says she's looking forward to events with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, and she says the date you've been announcing for uh, the climate change event on March 26th, I've been saying, uh, uh, is Wednesday, and, uh, and so she wanted to make sure that we have the right date. So yes, I was mistaken there, Lacey. I've been saying Wednesday the 26th. It's actually Thursday the 26th. There's a There's an interim day there, event in Salt Lake City on the 23rd, followed by two events on Tuesday the 24th, and uh, then that uh, date back at the Clark Planetarium is on Thursday the 26th. Thanks for that correction. We go next to uh, a phone call, uh, Tom and Vernal. Tom, uh, thanks for waiting and uh, appreciate your call.
2: I have a a slightly different
4: concern. Um, I think this all goes to Christian credibility.
0: I'm a Christian myself, so I think of this in terms not just as to what's true, but the the outside world's uh, perception of of,
2: of, of what uh, people, what they are afraid of. The perception, I think, that uh, would be a dangerous one is that Christians are afraid of the truth. If science pretty substantially and demonstrably shows that, that something is happening, and it's, uh, it's denied by people of faith. How in the world are you going to
4: persuade those people that you have spiritual truths that you can offer them?
0: Interesting, interesting point. Susan Svelay, I wonder what do you say to that?
4: Uh, that is a great question, and, and I agree. I think um, talking about our spiritual truths um, can sometimes help us shift and talk about the acceptance of science in a way that um, can sidestep that kind of pothole that is created by, by uh, those who uh, want to deny the science. And I think the point that the caller made in terms of it being uh, coming maybe from a, a place of fear uh, is, is accurate. There are, again, I just want to say huge swaths of Christians that do accept the science Um, There's an evangelical network, it's called the Environmental Evangelical Network, that um, is huge and growing. Uh, Even the LDS Church has a fabulous uh, portion of its website on lds.org. If you type in um, environmental stewardship, they have a a whole site devoted. has a a beautiful video, great resources um, that have... uh, that all are based on the scriptures of the LDS Church. Um, There are a host of other Christian communities that do accept the science. And and when people talk about the science, I say it's kind of like gravity. You can accept that we have gravity or you can deny that we have gravity, but either way it's impacting you. And it's the same way with this science. Um, You can accept the, the science that is undeniably in that this is real and we are causing it, and we need to do something about it, or you can hide your head in the sand and deny that it's happening. But either way, it's happening.
0: Stephen trouble just have about a minute left. What what's your response to Tom's point?
2: I, I love his point, and it is. Um, and Susan reinforced that there there are many very prominent scientists who have uh, made the point that you can easily be a person of faith and also believe in science. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences supports that they they produced a um, a really interesting piece of literature not long ago talking about evolution and how it's perfectly acceptable to be both a person of great faith and believe in evolution. There's a wonderful book by E. O. Wilson, the the conservation biologist, called The Creation, where he writes about being a person of faith and sort of addresses his book to a uh, a Baptist minister, if I remember correctly. And writes about how, how you can uh, keep these parallel tracks and feel strongly about both of them. So th- this is not about, uh, you know, it's not about the tension between science and, and belief. It's, it's really about what we can do as human beings as we move into a future and find a way to deal with this enormous change that is going to be coming down the, the line and affecting us all. And uh, Interfaith Power and Light helps us to have that conversation. And I think Catherine Hayhoe will do wonderful things here in a very conservative state to move that that conversation forward.
0: And uh, let me just announce before we end here, those dates, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and evangelical Christian. She'll speak to the topic, Faith, Science, and Climate Action. Uh, The first presentation is Monday, March 23rd, 7 o'clock in the evening, First Presbyterian Church on C Street in Salt Lake City. Then two events in Logan on March 24th, a USU event at 3 o'clock in Engineering Building, Room 108. Then at 5 o'clock, an event in the LDS Tabernacle. And uh, back to Salt Lake City on Thursday, the 26th, Clark Planetarium, 7 o'clock. So those are the dates uh, if you'd like to to go to those presentations. Susan Soleil with the Utah Interfaith Power and Light, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Stephen Trimble with uh, Utah IPL, thank you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. We'll have a fun segment with uh, veterinarian uh, Dr. Gary Weitzman, How to Speak Cat, How to Speak Dog. We'll also get serious as well, talk about sheltering animals and adoption of pets. That's tomorrow on the program. Thanks for listening today.
1: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and
3: education. Salamanders have long been a source of mystery for humans, and their name reflects some of this mystique. The word salamander has its roots in an Arab-Persian word meaning lives in fire, reflecting an early belief that salamanders could walk through fire unscathed. Mentioned by Aristotle, Aesop, and Shakespeare, This myth likely arose from salamanders that fled the fireplace once their cozy home in the woodpile was disturbed. Utah is home to only one of the world's more than 500 salamander species. Our tiger salamanders can live in a multitude of different habitats, so long as there is access to fresh water. Because of their need to stay moist, salamanders live a life often hidden from view, spending much of their time underneath rocks, leaves, and other debris. But in early spring, these unique creatures become more active and leave their homes in search of a mate. The salamander life cycle is similar to that of a frog. Eggs are laid in a pond or other source of still water and hatch into larvae called efts, which look quite like their frog counterpart, the tadpole. After spending a few weeks in the larval stage, individuals metamorphose into an adult. While modern science has debunked a lot of salamander myths, one big mystery still remains not all salamanders undergo metamorphosis to become what we recognize as an adult salamander. Some remain in the larval form their entire life, and are even able to reproduce as larvae. This phenomenon, called paedomorphism, has been documented in a number of salamander species, and scientists don't really understand why or how it happens. Some speculate that the ability to morph or not helped salamanders overcome environmental challenges such as competition for resources, lack of water, or increased predation. Unfortunately, this amazing adaptation has not helped salamanders overcome recent decreases in population that baffled scientists for many years. At one time mysterious, scientists now understand that salamanders are some of the first species to show the effects of pollution in their environment. Now that this particular salamander mystery has been solved, these animals are playing an increasingly important role in determining ecosystem health, which may help save many other species. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of
1: Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.
3: As a way to recognize the efforts made by its water scientists and engineers, Utah State University is celebrating 2015 as the year of water. Tune in throughout the year as UPR's Jennifer Pemberton and a team of reporters follow scientists into the lakes, streams, and snowfields that are the source of our drinking water, our agricultural industry, our stunning scenery, and our world-class recreation. Join us at 9 a.m. on the last Friday of each month for The Source, an hour-long conversation with the people whose knowledge is used to manage Utah's most precious resource. Thanks for listening to Utah Public Radio. The TED Radio Hour is coming up next. To listen to this broadcast and other Access Utah programs, visit our website at upr.org. It's currently 35 degrees on the USU campus in Logan.